I'm Joe Lombardo. I am the co-coordinator of the United National Anti-War Coalition, which is a coalition of anti-war groups around the country that is sponsoring this panel. I will just introduce the panel, make a couple of remarks, and then I'll also speak in, in the discussion period. We're going to try to have half the time with the speakers and half the time for discussion, so that think of what you might be either interested in asking or the comments or analysis you have about the situation in Venezuela and broaden it out if, because when we did, did this panel there was a real focus on Venezuela and U.S. imperialism as it typically does has shifted a little bit more towards Iran but we, it's the same thing it's, that's going on with all these places where they do sanctions and vilify the the particular leader and try to get uh, build up uh, support within the United States for military action or other kinds of action against the country. So uh, we're all talking about the same thing and what we're talking about basically is, is building a movement against the wars. We have on the panel Bayman Azad, Organizational Secretary of the U.S. Peace Council, and I will give him a further introduction when he speaks. We have Kevin Zeese, who's um, co-coordinator or co-chair of Popular Resistance, Sarah Flounders, who's the co-coordinator of International Action Center, and William Kamakaro, who is a founder and coordinator of the Bolivarian Circles of New York, and he's also a Venezuelan himself. And besides all these groups being members of UNAC, the major thing was we were together on this tour to Venezuela in March that was organized by the U.S. Peace Council and their affiliate of the World Peace Council in Venezuela acted as our hosts, and we were able to get incredible access to everything we needed in Venezuela, including a long meeting where we were able to speak with Maduro, the president. We were able to speak with other high government officials. We spoke with some of the people in the opposition. We ended up, some of us being there longer than we projected because... American Airlines, the main carrier that went down there, decided there was um, a lot of chaos in Venezuela, so they stopped the flights. And so some of us had a long time getting out. I was the last one out. But during that end period, I tried twice to go to opposition demonstrations. And it was very interesting to go to these opposition demonstrations. One of them did not materialize at all. A lot of police were there, mainly to protect the demonstrators. Let me tell you this. Because it was very interesting, because we asked, because we saw these brigades of women police who took the front lines, and we asked why there were women police, and they said, taking the front lines in this demonstration that was supposed to happen, they said, they are, are better in calming down conflict. That was what they, they told us. That particular demonstration didn't start where they were going to start. It was supposed to be very provocative. They were going to start and march through an area which was a very strong Madero area, and people thought that was going to be a conflict, and then march to the assembly building where the National Assembly and the Constituent Assembly both meet, and the thought was they might try to take that over. So after not seeing a demonstration at the start of it, me and one other person who was with me from our delegation, Eva Bartlett, went down to the Constituent Assembly to see if anything was happening there, where we did see 40 people. This was the demonstration. They were well-dressed. Women had high heels on, but nobody else was there. 
But then we saw an incredible sight. We saw blocks and blocks and blocks of these people on motorcycles and motorbikes coming down to the um, Constituent Assembly building because they heard there was the possibility that the opposition might try to take it over. And so they were coming down with their bikes to surround it and uh, make sure that nothing happened. If you go to the UNAC website, you can see some of my reports, including some videos of that and some pictures of that. It's, it's a very interesting thing. Anyway, our particular tour was a little bit different than some of the other tours that I've been on, on international tours, because it was specifically designed so that leaders of various anti-war groups in the United States would be on it. So, for instance, we had uh, Bayman, who executive board of uh, U.S. Peace Council. We had the uh, chair of uh, Veterans for Peace. We had Kevin and Margaret, the leaders of Popular Resistance. We had Sarah Flounders, who will be speaking here from International Action Center. I was there from UNAC. We had the um, chairperson of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. We had a leader of Women's uh, Against Military Madness from uh, Milwaukee. And then we had some folks from Canada, including the leader of the Canadian Peace Congress and Eva Bartlett, who was a fantastic independent reporter. As I said, it was only scheduled to be for a week, but I was there for two weeks, and in that second week people were leaving, and we met with many, many people and got an incredible introduction to what was um, going on there. I'm going to leave it there except for one more thing. The most striking thing about Venezuela that I noticed was how the narrative in the United States was exactly the opposite of what was going on in Venezuela. I used to talk about propaganda and think that propaganda in the United States and other places was a little bit shaping the narrative, but based upon real facts, but shaping it so it goes in a specific direction where they want things to lead. The narrative that was coming out of the United States had nothing to do with the reality. (laughs) Nothing to do with the reality. What you heard in the United States was everybody was against Maduro, and there was gigantic opposition. As I said, I tried to go to two opposition rallies, and they did not happen. Yet I was at a Maduro rally, and this was a wonderful thing. As far as you could see in front of you, and as far as you could see behind you, there was just a sea of red shirts and um, pro-government and uh, people in support of the process. That's one kind of mobilization that was taking place every Saturday there. But there was other kinds of mobilizations that were taking place on a day-to-day and minute-to-minute basis. We were able to go to collectives and watch how people were doing urban farming. They were taking plots of land so that they can be food safe, even with the sanctions that are going on. We, just in a hundred different ways, how people were mobilizing. These urban gardens were on the streets, but they were also on the roofs of buildings and on terraces and everywhere so that, that it could be fools. We also got there just when the blackout happened and started. And when we talked to Maduro, he was telling us the evidence they had that it came from the United States. In fact, they identified that it came from two places, Houston, Texas, and uh, Chicago. And we've just recently watched another cyber attack that took place in Iran. And so that's one of the things this government does. They deny it, they deny it, and yet that's one of the things that they do. 
Kevin will talk more about the embassy collective defense that took place in Washington, D.C., where he stayed to the very end and was arrested, and Margaret, who was also in the room, was there. But the inspiration for the name of that came from the collectives that we saw. So when we came back, not only did all of our organizations push out the information that we saw to try to counter the false narrative that you're hearing in, in the news media, but that experience has continued and is continuing. And just one last thing, on July 14th and 15th, that weekend, and the period around there, there will be demonstrations that UNAC has called against the war moves against Venezuela and Iran. But also, as UNAC always talks about, we always talk about the wars abroad and the wars at home. And so we've seen in the news all the prisons, the concentration camps where they've been putting kids, so we want to to uh, call attention to that in, in these demonstrations too. When they talk about the terrible conditions in, in Venezuela that they attribute to Maduro, all you got to do is look at some of the things that are going here with mass incarceration, with jailing of children, and, and much more. So our first speaker is going to be Sarah Flounders. Um, Sarah Flounders is co-coordinator of the International Action Center. She's also on the administrative committee of UNAC, She's the author of many books and articles, and there's a lot more that I can say about Sarah. Anybody that is in New York City, um, almost every demonstration, Sarah is one of the organizers of it here. Just in starting, I want to say, because always we look at this, how do we explain what we're doing to wider numbers of people? That's a very important part of mobilizing and organizing. We have to always be addressing the impact of U.S. war propaganda. It is intense. And as Joe was saying, when when they're repeated again and again and again, they can have no connection to the reality of what's happening in the world. No, it's like there's another planet. There's another reality here, and it seeps in... This is the role of the corporate media. It seeps into consciousness even among those who are defending any country that is under attack. It it creates a reality that when you're talking to someone else, it can be difficult to get past the images already in their head. So that's something we always want to think of with media propaganda, that people's views are already shaped about what is going on in Venezuela. And you're trying to describe what you saw, but they think they've already seen it because they watched the news one night on TV and they saw empty shelves and people were angry and that's the reality they're thinking. And there's years of this, years of this. A lot of it is also completely and totally racist, deeply so. The demonization of leaders, elected governments around the world is really saying again and again that this leadership is corrupt, it's inept, it's involved in mismanagement, and their empty shelves and repression is all based on this unrepresentative dictatorship. That's the way it's always put, regardless of what's going on. So it becomes ingrained, and it's on top of generations just of Western arrogance. That's, That's the role of demonization. It's not just that story. It's tying it in to every story attacking immigrants and Muslims and struggles around the world. 
attacking Cuba, when every attack on Venezuela has another weighted, every attack on Iran has another layer of the past wars that the U.S. has fought. So it's, it's very important. I also want to say that what each one of us actually loved about Venezuela today is, is learning the many ways that the government and all the different, different popular organizations of power are learning to empower people to take matters into their own hands and to defend a revolutionary process. Now, it is a process that is still unfolding. It's not perfect. It's uneven. And every U.S. attempt is to create crisis and shortages and to try to undercut people's confidence in their ability to solve their own problems. That's a lot of what the sanctions are about. It's how to destabilize and create passivity, demoralization, because corporate power is only possible when people are unempowered and confused and at each other's throats. Then corporate power is powerful. Now, as part of the whole Bolivarian revolution, and under Chavez and now Maduro, the elected president, the, the first step was to provide basic services for a large part of the poorest part of the population, who were so uncounted, they weren't even included in the census. Their, their whole barrios of Caracas, two million people, uh, completely uncounted. On the map, it's just an empty green space until the Bolivarian Revolution. That meant no services whatsoever, no water, no electricity, no plumbing, no sewage system. It's just people literally hanging on mountainsides in what they could put together with um, corrugated pieces of metal and cardboard and wood and whatnot. So the first step was in really in these huge barrios to begin to provide both educational programs healthcare programs and water and sanitation and sewage, you know, electrification, the basic, basic supplies. And to count these people and involve them in the process. Because it's not just providing services to, it's participation in the process. So very important. Of course, there were huge educational programs, daycare to university for the first time. There were health care programs that we could spend the entire talk on of clinics and immunization programs and vaccinations and attention on diet, providing malaria drugs and, and so on. All of this is what is really threatening to the U.S. That is a threat. It's also true, of course, Venezuela has the largest oil, gas, gold, all of that. That's true. That's true. But it was a process underway, because you could look at Cuba that has none of those things. Why on earth are there years, decades of blockade of Cuba? It's because the process underway is what is a threat to U.S. corporate control. And we, we always want to keep that in mind and not just be economic determinists. There is a challenge in people's power here or anywhere in the world. Now, Venezuela had a very rich, prosperous middle class, and it had super rich. And 
the U.S. mobilized to actually sabotage the working class and the poor with the participation of those who had great privileges. The wealthy in, in Venezuela really controlled, and U.S. corporations here, the food distribution network, the warehouses. Venezuela had almost entirely an imported economy. And that's something for us to, to keep in mind. Most of the products in Venezuela, oil is exported, all kinds of raw materials are exported, and the goods are imported. It is a country more urban than the U.S. The U.S. is about 80% urban. Venezuela is 90%. That meant that those in the countryside decades ago were expropriated, no agricultural program, and came landless and without skills to the cities, to the barrios. That is a process not only in Venezuela, but it's true around the world, that agriculture, except for cash crops, just gets gutted. And people come unable to get food or, or, or seed crop or fertilizers. So how would the U.S. sabotage this? Let's address what sanctions are. And there will be a lot of others talking about this. But the sanctions, whether in Venezuela or in Iran or against Cuba or Russia or Zimbabwe or Sudan or any one of 30 countries where the U.S. has imposed sanctions are an exact attempt to create shortages and hyperinflation, destabilization. If you can't get a battery for an elevator or a light bulb, it is endless frustration. And it makes you angry at the government that can easily be blamed. That's, that's its purpose also. Hyperinflation became so wild in Venezuela, more than a thousand percent, two thousand percent, changing hourly, daily, forget about weekly. So what was the Venezuelan solution? Now they couldn't solve the hyperinflation like that, but what they did do, and this is very interesting because when I say radical solutions, the metro was free. Gas from the gas pumps was free. Utilities were free. If you can't pay for it because the money, the value of money is changing literally minute to minute, then you do away with whole parts of the cash. And also, the government began, through the community organizations, to provide what are called clap boxes of basic materials, basic goods that every family knew they had a right to and could come and claim. And they were distributed through the community uh, uh, collectivos that were set up. What was in this box of goods that everyone knew they were getting? It had coffee and tea and sugar and, and maybe soap and shampoo and rice and beans and things like that. I'm sure William Kamakara will be talking a lot about food sovereignty, but I want to just say a few words on that because it's another way of empowering the population. There's both the basic food supplies that are given out, but Every neighborhood, we went to this amazing Ministry of Urban Agriculture, and it's, it's only been set up three, four years and already is providing 25% of the food needs of everyone in Venezuela, in the cities, not somewhere out on another farm. Every neighborhood lot, vacant lot, backyard, rooftop, all over Venezuela is being planted with really basic vegetables, protein, people raising everything from rabbits to chickens to beans and legumes. 
it means an end to the most dangerous processed food. It, it's totally organic. And Venezuela said, who did we turn to for this? The experts, the scientific experts who've elevated this to a high level from Vietnam, North Korea, People's Korea, and Cuba. And this is the other countries that have done this and done it very successfully. So those are the kind of exciting things that we saw. Uh, I'll leave to others to describe what happens when the U.S. shuts off the electric grid and you don't have a traffic light, an elevator, water pumping, any of that. Uh, but there again, you saw a people's mobilization to direct traffic, to do everything. And the biggest thing I, I want to say, when the sanctions hit 85% of the medicine, they just make shortages in every single thing. There's also at the same time a mobilization of the extreme right. And on that step, the militias, the people's militia, just to ask everyone here to think, do any of you live in a community or a neighborhood where you have any protection against right-wing, racist cops, or ICE, anything like that? You see, in every community in Venezuela today, there are militias that are organized on the ground and the militia is more than two million strong. It's more important institution in many ways than the military itself, which has remained strong. So these are the kind of creative things that we saw. We saw community councils that, as I say, distribute the food, organize the militias, organize on a higher level the communes, which guarantee seating not only to the community councils, but LGBT organizations, women's organizations, unions, seniors, youth. These are the kind of popular organizations that are being intentionally created. And so when we think about Venezuela, let's think past the images that we see and look at new forms of people's power and learn those lessons here. Because when we're in the streets mobilizing, and I hope people think seriously about the dates in mid-July for actions in solidarity with Venezuela, with Iran, with all the countries under sanctions, and with the migrants right here. We're having demonstrations in New York. I think there's about at least 15 or more cities around the country. We're organizing again in September, just before the UN. Those demonstrations are shared amazingly in the millions all over Venezuela. So what we're doing here, it strengthens us, but it also strengthens people in Venezuela and every one of these countries under attack. So, thank you. Well, when I say Venezuela is a, a dictatorship, you, you just think about the fact that they're, the government's arming the people. <laughs> Not too many dictatorships would do that. After we met with Maduro, we came outside of the um, area where we met with him, presidential palace, and there was an occupation. And some of us have been part of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Albany, and all these occupations, usually anti-government occupations. Well, they were there because of the coup threats. They were there to protect their government. And they're occupying the areas around, around the presidential palace. So the way it works is a women's organization would come and occupy for a period. A particular community would come and occupy for a period. Different groups would come and occupy. When we were there, the oil workers were there. And so we had no scheduled meeting with them or anything, but we just went there. 
and we told them who we were, or anti-war peace delegation from the United States in solidarity with their process, and, you know, they immediately took us in and made each of us stand up in front of everybody and speak, you know, to cheers and, and, and claps. That's the kind of mobilization that's taking place throughout their country, despite these incredible sanctions, which take medicine away from them. People have Many, many people have died because of these sanctions. And then the government, our damn government, says, you see, socialism doesn't work. So uh, our next speaker is Kevin Zies, who's the co-chair of Popular Resistance. He's the co-host of Clearing the Fog radio podcast. He was on the steering committee of the Peter Kamale Ralph Nader campaign for the Green Party, and he was a member of the Venezuelan Occupation Collective that took place in, in Venezuela. One other thing about him was during the last election, he was an observer of the election because the United States tries to say the fact that Maduro got 70% of the vote means nothing because it wasn't a, a good election. 67. That's more than 49, isn't it, percent? <laughs> um, anyway, when we went to the election commission, a, a independent body of government that's elected and they told us the way the elections work. Kevin took very copious notes and had a lot to say about it. Here's Kevin. All right, thanks. So I'm going to mainly focus on the Embassy Protection <coughs> Collective um, that lived in the Venezuelan Embassy in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown for 37 days. How many people have heard about <coughs> that action? That's great. <coughs> so, you know, even though there was a media blackout, People are aware of it who are care, care about these issues because we had an incredible uh, team inside and outside doing social media, people's media, and getting the word out. Um, I've been to Venezuela twice in the last year. Once, as uh, Joe mentioned, was with the uh, U.S. Peace Council this March, and then last May with the Intrepid News Fund uh, to observe uh, and monitor the election that uh, Maduro won and write about it and report on in the United States. Uh, and there were, by the way, 150 election observers, uh, international election observers for that election, unanimously agreed. It met all the standards of international law for dem democratic elections. Uh, there was no, no fraud of any significance, and President Maduro won it and was legitimately elected. So when you hear he's a dictator, those are the facts. He ran against five people, got 67% of the vote, and they tried to boycott the election at, under U.S. pressure. In fact, the opposition, lead opposition candidate was pressured by the U.S. not to run. He ran anyway. The U.S. did this because they knew that they could not defeat Maduro. Uh, he'd done too much for the people, the poorest people especially, in Venezuela, and they could not win in the polls. Uh, on top of that, the opposition had become very violent and become very unpopular uh, and could not win an election. So they tried to boycott the election, get no one to run, and that was an effort to undermine the election before it even started. But the election went on. There was, were five candidates. Maduro won. 67% of the vote, by the way. It was about almost 50% turnout, 48% turnout, even with the boycott. But if you just looked at registered voters, not those who voted, Maduro got more votes than either President Obama or President Trump in the elections in the United States. That's registered voters. So he won easily. So the Embassy Protection Collective began because the U.S. has failed in its coup in Venezuela. They've tried and tried and tried. Every attempt has been met with failure. They can't win elections. They can't conduct a coup. 
They can't get the people to support the coup. They can't get the military to uh, leave the Maduro administration and support the coup. They just have failed. And so the U.S. is doing an outside-the-country coup, setting up embassies around the world to try and create a government in exile that can plan the coup from outside and give a false legitimacy to a U.S.-created government. And so what happened in the United States was a couple of diplomatic buildings and offices were taken in New York City with the help of the administration and the police. The opposition were able to take those. They did the same thing in Washington, D.C., took the military attache building with the help of the U.S. government. The opposition could take those. And they were going to do the same thing at the Crown Jewel, which was this embassy in Georgetown that held 80 people working there. Big embassy, four floors, a basement, two-floor garage. This is a big building in the heart of Georgetown. And to take that embassy was a major step. And so on April 10th, we began to live in that embassy. April 10th, because on April 9th, the United States manipulated the Organization of American States to change their process of recognizing a government. Normally it requires a two-thirds vote. The U.S. was able to manipulate things down to a 50%, 51% vote. They barely got that majority and recognized Guaido. And that meant the ambassadors to the OAS for Venezuela were no longer ambassadors. They were told to leave the country. Normally that's a multi-month process. They were given two weeks. The next day we entered the embassy with the permission of the elected government, with the permission of the embassy staff. They gave us keys. They showed us around. They told us how everything worked because they knew they wouldn't be there after about a week or two. And we ended up staying 37 days. The... um, Well, and and it was a very interesting process. The the, the protection collective, initially, we could come and go easily. And we held forums every night on various issues, AFRICOM, Honduras, Venezuela, CIA regime change. We had John Kiriakou, a former CIA agent, telling about the view of regime change from inside the CIA. And he did this on the day before the ambassadors were leaving. So we thought the police were coming the next day. Once the ambassadors left... That was a free hand then for the police to come in, we thought. So he was giving that talk the day before that was supposed to happen, an amazing thing. Of course, of course, it wasn't amazing enough for the media to cover it. No. Uh, you know, it's a unique event. In U- the whole thing was a unique event in U.S. history. Never before have people from the United States gone into an embassy to protect it, uphold international law, and prevent a U.S. coup. Never happened before in history, and yet it wasn't enough news for the New York Times that's fit to print. Uh, and for CNN to cover, they should have been there every day. It was such, every day was an interesting day. So we could initially go in and out, no problem. But then on April 30th was another coup attempt. And on that day, the opposition started to come to the embassy as well. And they were a violent, racist, misogynist, hateful opposition, just like they are in Venezuela. We got to see why they can't win elections, because they behave like juvenile, uh, aggressive juvenile delinquents. And I'm not saying that... I'm, I'm, that's a minimal con- concern. If you, see, if you follow this and saw the uh, social media, the li- live streams of what they were doing, it was astounding. They were assaulting people who supported us on the outside. When our people got assaulted, they got arrested, not the people doing the assault. Our victims, the people who supported us, were arrested rather than the person conducting the assault. They blocked food from getting in to the embassy. They didn't let people come into the embassy. The police allowed them to go right up to the embassy grounds, surround the building on three sides. The fourth side was a canal. And so we were surrounded under siege by this violent mob. 
of pro-coup supporters. And these were pro-coup supporters. These were people from not just from Venezuela, but from Nicaragua, from Cuba, uh, Latin Americans who had left Latin America because of the left movements there. These were people who made money in the old oligarchs and couldn't make money as well in the new world. And so they fled, and they are people who advocate for coups in all of these countries. Uh, we had conflicts with them over Nicaragua at the OAS as well. And so this is a, a common problem. So they blocked our food, blocked people coming in and out. They broke into the embassy multiple times, breaking windows, breaking doors, coming in. When they came into the embassy, we could, one, 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 the first one was a guy who uh, came in, got to the third floor, locked himself in a room. We, the police were told about it. They said, we want to get him out. The problem is the Vienna Convention does not allow the U.S. to enter an embassy. Uh, that it, it, it's inviolate under international law. They cannot violate that embassy. And so we need to get the permission of the elected government of Venezuela to allow the peace in for a partial, to, minimal violation to remove those, that, that one protester. Protester gets pulled out, not arrested. He breaks a window to enter, breaking and entering, comes in, locks himself in the room, does destructive damage in the building, no arrest. He goes out, gets a pat on the back. He's doing selfies with his, with his allies and with the police. That's how they treated people who broke and entered. And that wasn't the only one. There were multiple times. They broke and entered into the building. Uh, Margaret had an amazing conflict with one person who broke and entered. One night, at, early in the morning, he came in through a window, tried to climb over the ceiling, which was one of these kind of ceilings. Couldn't do that, so broke the door down. Amazing mess he made. He gets in. Margaret gets down there. He's trying to open the door to let more people in. Margaret grabs the door and is holding it by herself with this guy, threatening and she's able to stop them from coming in. The police again removed that person. They broke into the garage, broke the garage door. Multiple times they came in the garage. We had to put barriers up because the door was broken. We had to put barriers up and put our cars against the barriers. They still came in. People, we had people sleeping in the garage in a van because they were constantly trying to break into the garage. We were under siege. We had uh, multiple times of people trying to get food in, and we were successful multiple times and stopped multiple times. Uh, and sometimes the stopping was very violent. We had one guy who, you know, video of him being held up against the wall in a chokehold with the police watching, not doing anything. Another guy who was uh, injured so badly, he's been out of work for more than a month. He's, his, he, has, he has a crutch on his foot. He's uh, thousands of dollars in debt from health bills. We're trying to raise money to help develop that for him. So it was amazing to see this, but we did get a lot of food in. People are allies outside. The pe- members of the collective who are outside the embassy were so important. We so love them all, not only for showing support, but for taking risks themselves. I'm sure when the police entered and arrested us, they were shocked at our food pantry because we had (laughs) carefully preserved food and we had carefully preserved water because they were able to shut the water off, shut the electricity off. So we were suffering the same fate as Venezuelans on a smaller scale. Electricity is attacked, food's attacked, water's attacked. Threats of military attack, terrorism, like we were, they have there, we have there. We had all the same things that the U.S. is doing to Venezuela on a smaller scale doing to us. And so we had, at a peak, had 70 people sleeping in the embassy before this mob came. It gradually dwindled down. We were about 15 or 20 a uh, week before the arrest. As they shut the electricity and water off, we decided to shrink further so we could preserve ourselves and last for multiple months. We were going to be there for another couple of months if necessary. And so we shrunk ourselves down because we wanted to make sure we had the resources to survive. And we were collecting resources. We had water collectors on the roof when it rained, cisterns that collected water into buckets. We had a, a solar 
uh, oven on the roof to cook food. We charged our phones in the car. The car got warm. We cooked food on the engine. Uh, we, discovered, we discovered that pasta does not have to be heated to become soft. Put it in water and wait, and you can eat that pasta fine. So we had fantastic pasta with, uh, with, with peanut butter sauce. Uh, we, we had fanta- we found fantastic fish tacos with tuna. We had amazing Indian food. One of our media people who was embedded with us has an Indian father. She cooked us an amazing Indian meal one night. So we, we were going to we were thinking about putting an embassy protection cookbook out. Uh, anyway, we, so we're there for 36 days, 37 days. Three days before the arrest, the police came. They cut the chains on the front door, and they come to the threshold. Four of us remain at that point. We had asked three people left the day, that day. We were down from seven to four, the final four. One thing they all had in common, by the way, none voted for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. They all voted for Stein Baraka. Not all were Greens, but they all voted for Stein Baraka, uh, which I applaud. They said, will you voluntarily leave? We said, no. We are here legally. We gave them a 45-minute lecture about why they can't come in, the Vienna Convention, the risk of war, how this is escalating conflict between U.S. and, the United St- uh, US and Venezuela, how Russia and China are aligned with Venezuela, this can become a global conflict, how this put all U.S. embassies around the world at risk by violating the Vienna Convention. We told those police, when you hear someone who's killed an embassy in a year, think about when you cross this threshold, because you will be the cause of it. When you think of this war that develops in Venezuela, if it de- develops into a global war, World War III, think about when you cross this, this threshold, because that's the beginning of this war. They walked away and didn't arrest us that night. We went out to the crowd, cheers, and people were so happy we survived. Right. Two days later, we got a call after breakfast. We're going to come in with a, we're going to break the doors down. Come, we have an arrest warrant to arrest you. Come out or else we'll arrest you. I said, I'm calling my lawyer. And they battered the door down. Rather than coming in the door, they had broken open easily. They could have walked in with no problem. They used battering rams. 100 police, more than 100 police, from five different police agencies, many in military costumes, military weapons, came in and arrested four of us, even though we told them, we would not resist arrest. We just would not leave voluntarily. But we would not resist arrest. And so there's no need for this show. 100 police. So we got, we're now facing federal charges. We just got our first plea offer. The government wants to put us in jail. How long? The potential is a year and a $100,000 fine. The government probably thinks they can get six months if things go well for them. So we're in the process of getting ready for that defense. That's a, I, I'd be happy to take questions about that. We have a very strong legal team. We have strong legal arguments. I think we can win this. If we win it, we can only, only protect ourselves. We show that a jury in the United States says no to this U.S. coup. So please check out popularresistance.org. Go to Embassy Protection Collective. Just search that on the, on, the, on the search function. You'll find all about this. Please join us in this defense because this defense is an opportunity for us to keep building the movement. Thank you all very much. So you'll all hear more how you can participate in that defense that Kevin just talked about in a, in a few um, minutes. On April 29th, um, or it was 28th maybe, Sarah and Pippa and I were outside the um, Venezuelan military attache building, which the opposition had just come to take over in Washington. And when we came out there to try to protect the building, the cops came too. And what we saw was very interesting, because what was happening was they didn't want the building, these Venezuelan opposition people. They were carrying out TVs and VCRs and computers, and they were putting them in their cars. They were stealing the property of Venezuela, of the Venezuelan people. And who did the police help? They stopped us from 
being in front of that building pushed us back, threatened us with arrest, allowed them to steal this stuff. So when you hear the illegal stuff they've done, breaking international law by going into territory of Venezuela by international law, Geneva, when you see what they did at that particular embassy, then you know the stuff that Sarah was talking about, about the role the police play in defying the law and breaking the law for the people that rule this country and rule Venezuela is real. And when Venezuelans decide to arm their people, that's, that's the reason they're doing it. Our next speaker is a Venezuelan and co-founder of the uh, Bolivarian Circles here in New York. When we were down there with our delegation, we were sitting in the hotel where we were, and I've, I've known William for a while, and in walks William. <laughs> and, um, so uh, he spent some time with us on the delegation and um, was there with us and before and after and, and for many times. I just heard him tell a story last night about when the blackout happened, the first blackout being downtown and what he had to do and walking through the dark with, a, with a, no moon in the sky with people and the cooperation that he was seeing in the streets with people, which we all saw too. So I'm going to let William speak. I want just to go over several issues that have been happening in the last 20 years. Since Chavez came to power in 1990, 1998. So we have been confronting a huge number of uh, difficulties and with United States relations. The first thing that I remember was when Chavez, President Chavez, went to visit Saddam Hussein. And, and at that moment, the President of the United States was Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton said that if you fly over Iraq, your plane will be shot down. So, and Chavez, in a press conference, said, replied to Clinton, saying, I will go and I will visit Iraq. I will go to Baghdad. I will check hand with Saddam Hussein. If I had to go in camel, I would cross the borders in camel. So, Chavez crossed the border in camel. <laughs> there are incredible pictures of Chavez crossing the border from Iran to Iraq and Camel. <laughs> so since that happened, so we have been facing a lot of uh, challenge from the United States. So the first thing that is that when he won the first election in 1998, that day was supposed to have a coup data, the same day that he won the first election. And several people that were involved in several members of the army that were involved in the coup d'etat, they decide to denounce the, the, what was happening, and nothing happened that day. Since that happened, well, we have the most famous coup d'etat against Chavez that was in 2002. The person that took power at that moment was Pedro Carmona. He was coming from the private sector, was a businessman from the private sector. And Pedro Carmona, Pedro Carmona is known now in Venezuela because he's was, he was only 30, 37 hours in power. He is known as uh, Peter the Brief. <laughs> so Peter, Peter the Brief, because he was 35 hours in, in power, he was immediately recognized by uh, the State Department, and immediately was recognized by the New York Times. The New York Times have a very nice editorial piece dedicated to George Bush at that moment, and also to this incredible man who is now known as a Peter the Brief. 
So then we have the so-called oil extract, or better to say the right-wing management lockout in the oil industry. That started in December 2002 and ended in 2003, January 2003, with almost two months. So the state lost billions of dollars in two months because they were able basically to stop the entire oil industry in the country. So huge line to full butan and gasoline, the industry was not working. And the same thing happened that happened in, during the coup d'etat against Chavez. During the coup d'etat when, during Ch when Chavez in 2002, so you know, thousands and millions of people went to the street uh, looking for President Chavez and went to the army, to the headquarters of the army, and they wanted them to see what, who what they were supporting. So in the army, start little by little, go out and say, we support Chavez, we support Chavez, we support Chavez. And question the hour, everything turned around. So the same thing happened during the so-called oil strike. So the government published a big name, a big, li a big list of names with all these people that were behind of the so-called oil strike. And then the community organized by themselves. And they went to the headquarters of PDVSA, the oil, the, the, the oil industry in Venezuela, in Caracas. They went also to several refineries and they organized checkpoint. Big number of people with the list. Can you show me your ID, please? Yeah. And, oh, you know, the president of oil industry said that you are part of the sabotage. You cannot get inside. Get out of here. So that was the popular power. So, during those years the child was in power, we experienced a different kind of attack. Again, the economy, again, President Chavez, even, the, you know, he was kidnapped, you know, in those days. And this five years, we have been experienced a multi-form attack. We have a cyber attack, we have a blackout, we have also economic warfare, we have a big number of sanctions that the first one to start with all those sanctions was President Obama with his famous decree declaring that Venezuela was an unusual and extraordinary threat to the security of the United States. In fact, it's a threat against the corporate interests of the United States and South America because Venezuela was opposing to the free trade agreement. Venezuela was opposing also to the PPT that Obama was extremely desperate to get an agreement and he was unable to do it, and that's why Mr. Trump was so easy to drop the TPP. <laughs> and that's why they are punished in Venezuela. That's one of the reasons. And from all this, you can say, oh, they have, we have more than 20 years confronting all kinds of attacks from the United States. You can say, well, what, else, what else they can do? You know, what else they are preparing? So how many of you know here that just a few days ago, between 23 this month, 23, 24, there was already, there was a coup that was discovered just a few days ago. How many people know about it? Because there is a big silence. Yes, good for you guys. But there, but, but there is a, because there is a good silence about this coup that was taking place just a few days ago. So that was discovered just a few days ago, and it's extremely interesting to see what they were doing, what they wanted to do. So they have around 100 
140,000 uh, 140, machine guns. They have several teams, one from Israel, one from Colombia, formed by paramilitary from Colombia, and another one formed by North American agents. So they have also, every a different group have his own expertise for the coup, no? So one had the, the mission to capture President Maduro, kidnapping him, taking him to a military base, USA base, or kill him not only kill the president, also kill his wife. So that group also had the mission to call Yodado, to kill Yodado Cabello, the president of the National Assembly. There is another group that w was supposed to kill around 10 different generals. And another group that have a mission to kill several leaders from the grassroots movement, especially from Sucre and January 23. So, this is something that's coming all the time, January 22, 23, uh, Sucre, then all this neighborhood, everybody should know that all these neighborhoods are very close, extremely close to the presidential office. And all these neighborhoods support the government. So when Chavez was kidnapped, the first people that arrived to the presidential office were those people that were living very close from those communities they just walked and they, got, they, they were there to support President uh, Chavez. So, in fact, Julio Borges, there are some records about one of the opposition leaders from his party's Primera Justicia, ultra right wing Primera Justicia and Voluntad Popular, are parties that are connected with white supremacy people and are connected with some group that they have some link with neo-Nazi group. So they proposed, in this case, Julio Borges proposed that if they wanted to take uh, Maduro, that was three years ago, it is important to bomb January 23 and Sucre. So to do something that like they did in Panama when they bombed El Chorrillo, but this is something much, much bigger, and they will be killing a big number of people. So basically, what we are looking right now, what is this, what this mean? What we are looking right now is that they are preparing a massacre, a big massacre. They want to kill the leadership of the collective that we call Chavism. So they want to kill the head of the state, the head of the army, and the head of the social movement. This is the next step of the aggression that is coming for, from the United States to Venezuela. And I think that we should read more about what was the plan that was taking place this last week. Again, the Democratic president-elect in Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro, and the Bolivarian Revolution, to denounce that what the Trump administration is looking for on the hand of every, every hand that is a criminal, it's a massacre, again, Chavis, Chavistas in Venezuela. So just be alert and let's try to do something to denounce that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, William is organizing two tours also. If you are interested, you can come up here and look at the information. One is to Venezuela. It's a food sovereignty delegation to Venezuela in mid-August. And the other one is to Bolivia. 
during the presidential elections in that country to observe those presidential elections. If you're interested, come up and see. It's a very important thing to go to these countries and talk to people because, as I said, the narrative from the, that you're getting from the government is wrong. Our final speaker, and I hope you'll then stay for the discussion because we have to figure out how to stop this. There's no Democrats that are going to do it. There's not an anti-war wing of the Democratic Party. Nobody else is going to do it but an independent movement of the people. We have to figure out how to organize that. People in many countries have done that before, and so have we. There's someone from the Venezuelan mission who's just arriving, so I'll bring them. Oh, okay. We're going to have someone from the Venezuelan mission here also. So let's get our last speaker while we're waiting, and that's Dr. Bamin Azad. Um, he's an Iranian-American peace activist, a peace and justice activist. He's the chair of the Veterans for Peace Iran Working Group. He's the organizational secretary of the U.S. Peace Council. He's the coordinator of the global campaign against U.S. NATO military bases. He's a member of the UNAC Administrative Committee, and he's the representative of the World Peace Council at the United Nations, uh, Bauman. Well, the advantage or disadvantage of being the last one is that most of the things you want to talk about, everybody has talked about already. In a way, it makes it easier, another way, more difficult. I would like to shift gear and move it to another level, and not to cover what is going on in Venezuela exactly, but uh, uh, look at it from a broader perspective. And at the end, I have a significant announcement to make, and this is the first time it's being announced, so I want to do it here. As you know, since September 11, U.S. war machine has been put into high gear. And left and right, we are dealing with wars, after wars, after wars, unending wars. It's not just that one ends, you go to the other one. It's just continuing on with adding layers to the previous wars that are going on. And especially since Trump came, the administration came to power, this has gone into overcharge also. It's just a totally new level of confrontational policy around the world that is promoting war left and right, and it could create a global crisis of world war proportions in our view. So look at, just look at, you know, if you had just Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, now you have all three of them. You have Yemen. You have Libya going on with the disaster that's going on, Right. And now he's adding threats of war efforts to force regime change against several countries, expanding the U.S. economic war through imposition of illegal anti-human sanctions against Cuba again, expanding it, Syria, Iran, Venezuela. And in Venezuela, these sanctions have already been responsible for the death of 300,000 people, withdrawing from missile and nuclear treaties with Russia and Iran, creating humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, dispatching more U.S. warships and troops to the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf, expanding the reach of the U.S. global war machine, NATO, into Latin America, starting economic war with China, and finally taking on Russia. This whole thing is really about to blow up, and there is serious need for urgent action to be taken. And us as the people of the United States have a special responsibility because we are the only ones who can tame this beast or stop it. No other country can really do it from far away because any country that wants to face the United States ends up being faced with the U.S. military or economic warfare. 
it takes American people to really do something. And the question that is before us is, are we ready for that? And unfortunately, I would say, unfortunately not. We have been trying, we have worked hard, we have fought hard, but we are not getting it right. And I want to bring that picture into the discussion. What we have been doing in the past has been we have been fighting wars piecemeal, right? Today, Afghanistan, the next day, Iraq, the next day, Syria, the next day, Libya, the next day, this and that, right? And we have been missing the point that there's a connecting element to all of this. These are symptoms, effects of a cause. And unless we address the cause, we cannot solve the problem. As a result of this piecemeal effort, without getting to the root, we have been only been responsive to actions by the U.S. government, not preemptive, not proactive, by analyzing what they are planning to do, stop them before they start the criminal act. We have been going to the streets against, the only exception would be Iraq, before Iraq war started, but the rest of them, we have always responded after the fact. That's one. The reason for it is, though, there are several factors. The main thing is that our peace movement is fractured, has a long history of acting separately, one from the other. And we have to overcome that, no question about it. But there are several factors involved in this that we need to address. One, that common element that we think should be addressed is the warmongering essence of capitalism and imperialism itself. When you want to control the world, you end up fighting every country. <laughs> the question is, is stopping that drive. Otherwise, it's not a question of whether this leader is good or bad or this and that. that they're not after that. In fact, that's part of the propaganda machine. The effort, tactic. A few months before they want to invade some country or interfere in affairs and all that, they start demonizing the leadership. And they go beyond that. These countries have their own governments. They have their own parliaments, prime ministers, president, electoral processes, everything else, right? But one thing they do in order to be able to distort the reality in the minds of the people is to shrink the whole government of the country into one person. Into one person. This is not Russian government. It's Putin's government. That is Maduro's government, right? One by one. Because that's much easier to demonize simplifies the situation in the minds of the people. And once you have the propaganda machine like the U.S. media behind it, they can do it so easily. I, I mentioned that last night here. Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes program in the 70s when I was a student here said U.S. media has the power to make enemy number one at, of anybody within two weeks. That was 70s technology. Right? When they talked about Saddam Hussein, nobody knew what Iraq was, who Saddam was, nothing. In two months, Saddam Hussein was the enemy number one of the United States. That's why they do it. There's another effect on it that has a side effect that, that also causes confusion in the peace movement. By reducing it to the person as an evil person, then the cause of the attack becomes the person not the U.S. drive for domination, right? 
so they can turn it into individual case. This is because Saddam is doing it. This is because of Gaddafi. Right? People miss the link that we are going now for the Middle East. Right? Gaddafi, Saddam, Iran, and everything else is in that Middle East, and we are going to take it over. That is missed when you go by, one by one, demonizing and attacking those people. Okay? So that has been partly responsible for us as a peace movement not even working with each other. I'll give you one example. When the invasion of Syria started, UNAC, U.S. Peace Council, a few other groups, Popular Resistance, International Action Center, we got together and called on the peace movement to take action against it. You know what they said? They said both sides are bad. Assad is criminal. U.S. government is no good. We don't want to take sides. These are major peace organizations we're talking about. So the peace movement is paying for the same propaganda. We are falling for it too. Right? We absorb that propaganda and then become passive on this. And it happens that only when it comes to Syria, a few are working about it toward the cause. When it comes to Iran, another group is working. When it comes to environment, another group is working. When it comes to labor rights, another group is working. And we don't see the link that it is the military budget that is causing all the internal problems economically for the people. When you talk about a trillion dollar budget, and this is the part that is visible, when Obama talked about making colleges free of tuition, the cost of it was $40 billion. Just compare it to one trillion military budget, and you will see how American people are paying for all this. So we have to reverse this process. Consciously. And we have done it. We are moving in that direction. People who are sitting here, some of the people, are involved in bringing the forces together directly. The delegation we sent to Venezuela, it was a representative of true leadership of the, of the U.S. peace movement. It was such high-powered peace delegation that Venezuelans could not themselves believe it that such high-powered delegation is going there. They opened the doors to everything for us. They were so happy to see. And we were so inspired by that. But I'm happy and honored to say that six of the 12 delegation members to Venezuela from that delegation were involved from inside or outside with the embassy protection. We were inspired by that. And that struggle has not finished. I want to end by one this, this one announcement. That yes, the police raided the embassy. They arrested our great comrades. But the struggle is still going on. Embassy protection struggle is still going on because now our friends are facing trials that carry with them one year imprisonment, maximum sentences, and $100,000 in fines. Okay, four of them. Each one of them can face this. And it's a hard battle because we are sure that the government will try to make an example out of these people so nobody else even thinks about doing something like that. And we know also that they are going to hush it up. They're going to go through the process quietly without letting people know what violation is being happening brought against these people and against international law. So we have a big responsibility for the defense of the people who fought for us. They were representing all of us in that embassy. 
And we are responsible for that. Morally, politically, we are responsible for that, and we, are, we have to do something about it. And that is what has been happening. We have been successful in putting together what we have called Embassy Protectors Defense Committee. So far, it has about 17, 18 members of the major peace justice organizations, including some of the people who are seeing Sarah, Joe, Terry there, William. The embassy protectors themselves cannot be involved because of the legal side of the story, so we have picked up the baton to go with it. And we have today publicized the website for the embassy, for the embassy protectors defense committee. It is called defendembassyprotectors.org. Defendembassyprotectors.org. We expect that in the first round of trials, these people will be facing legal fees of upward of $50,000. So we are hoping that we can quickly, with people's contributions, raise that money to carry a good defense because you know the government has unlimited resources and they have every intention of you to use all the resources they have against our people and our movement in this case. So we want to ask you to please do as much as you can in terms of that. We need to have legal coverage of what the government is doing, what they are trying to charge them, what, what the process is, where the appeal is, or whatever else. So we need information to be broadcast to the public for everybody to know what the government is doing with these trials. And finally, the government's whole legal case hinges on reversing the international law, calling itself the protector, and calling these people occupiers. They are charged with interference with the defense, with the protective functions of the federal government, which is part of the government is responsible for protecting embassies, right? So, they're reversing the role. The government is violating it by raiding it, and people who are in there with the permission of the legitimate government of Venezuela are being tried right So in that sense, exposing that side of the story also is critical for us, to break down the case that the government is making against these people. So this, this committee is going to have three levels of struggle on its hands, financial, legal, and political. And we want everybody to participate in that, and we call for everybody, all organizations, to organize solidarity actions in support of the, the, the embassy protectors, send us the reports and photos of whatever you're doing so we can publicize this for the whole public. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I learned many years ago when I was organizing against the Vietnam War movement, I was one of the staff people on the National Peace Action Coalition, which organized against that, that if a movement can't defend its own members, it's not worth its salt. We have to defend these people because in doing it, we are defending ourselves. I know we said we're going to get right into discussion, but we have an unexpected guest, and Sarah's going to inter introduce her. All right. Um, it's very exciting and an honor uh, Danielle Rodriguez is here from the Venezuelan Mission to the UN. It is the only, really the only standing representation that Venezuela now has in the U.S. is at uh, the UN mission. So we want to give her an opportunity to say a few words. We also want to say that due to the sanctions, no one in the mission has received a penny now in five months. So I think we'll take a little collection just just for them also today. 
But let, let's give the floor, and thank you very much, Danielle. It's an honor that you're here. Thank you. I didn't expect this. I only wanted to see you all and listen to you all because I think the, the great fighters in this history are you in this place. And the fight, the struggle that you have here and that we have in Venezuela is an historical struggle against imperialism, against capitalism, and against the end of the humanity, because we need to save the humanity too from the disappearance, you know? Well, I'm just a worker, a worker like you, like everybody. I work because I believe in something. I believe in, in Hugo Chavez and all what our revolution has made in a very short time. I believe that we have to promote solidarity in the different part of the world because we are human beings and we need to feel each other's feel the suffering of any human being in any part of the world. That is part of our mission, and that is part of what uh, we are doing now. Here I'm talking in my personal view because I am exercising this uh, function here, and um, this is a big struggle, as uh, Zara has told everybody, We have an empire that do not respect international law, do not respect all the agreements ne necessary to, to promote the, convi uh, the convivence between peoples, between countries, you know. We have here the United Nations, that it is a, a multilateral global institution that has been progressively attacked by the government that hosts the organization is something very terrible that we are in the U.S., U.S. hosts the, the U.N., and U.S. constantly is pushing the, the U.N. and is pushing the countries that have life in the multilateral context. So the use the using of the fin financial system to promote regime, regime change is something terrible that is happening right now. And you know what? That is something that affects the people. That, that is not something that affects the governments, that, that affects the, the people directly. Because are the personal accounts too are the personal necessities of the people who, who has been affecting with all this manipulation of the financial system. So there is a new kind of world that we are facing right now. Like Venezuela, we really want to thank deeply from our heart all the efforts and all the fight and all the struggle that the Solidarity Movement and the Embassy Protection Committee and Collective has made here. For us, you are a hero, and for Venezuelan people, the fight and the courage that you have shown 
has inspired us to keep on fighting and to fight better than we have made until now because this is not only our responsibility, it's everybody's responsibility and it's the responsibility that we have with the humankind. So thank you, you're so inspiring with your example for our people and your sacrifice and your courage to face to the, the biggest empire, see to the eyes and tell the justice should prevail. Thank you so thank much. You. Only, only this because my English is not so good. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Venezuela and Iran are holding on to U.S. currency. And if they switch U.S. currency, that would be suicide. I want to confirm that. Uh, the second thing is about affordable drugs. If Venezuela were to start compulsory licensing and produce their own drugs at affordable rates, they'd probably get invaded. So the solutions seem to be one thing will trigger some kind of war. I, those are the things that came up. The other thing was that Monsanto was pushing... GMO-modified stuff in, and uh, the coup in Venezuela. So these are the, the comments that came up in the earlier section, so I just wanted you to... Okay. First but is the about real money, and the second is about producing, producing drugs. Compulsory, like producing your own pharmaceuticals, like South Africa tried to do in Clinton sanction them. So that would certainly trigger sanctions, okay. but there are solutions. And then, okay. can I just ask the legal question? Is this is the first case impression of an offense that you're being charged with? Has this ever, did they make up a department and put badges on people and make up a fake charge? Because that's what it looked like. Okay, so a question on the charges. Uh, we're going to do these four questions and people can respond. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, my name is Christoph from the Bolshevik Tendency. I think it's clear that um, all socialist-minded people stand with Venezuela and defend Venezuela against the imperialist aggression and we stand against our own government, of course, in this situation. Um, and I think <clears throat> it's widely known that the people in Venezuela have benefited from many of the reforms started under Hugo Chavez. It has lifted many people out of poverty, provided health care, education, all very key and all key to the support that the regime still enjoys. But I want also to raise a, a critique, I guess, or a cautionary tale, and that is I think there's often talk about the Bolivarian Revolution and, um, you know, Bolivarian Socialism and it's likened, Venezuela is likened to a socialist state, to Cuba or something similar. And I think that is mistaken because we still have capitalism in Venezuela. The bourgeoisie is actually actively engaged in trying to overthrow the existing regime. So the revolution is not in the past. I would hope the revolution will come, but we still need to overturn the bourgeoisie in Venezuela. And Hugo Chavez has not done that. He has maintained capitalism, and he has done deals with the bourgeoisie. So that is very important to remember where we are at in the struggle. The revolution okay. is still ahead. Thank you. Um, we're going to get those last two, and then we'll, we'll take some stuff here. Uh, one, and then two. My name is Jacob, and I'm a member of the Revolutionary Internationalist Youth. I just wanted to remark that the vote a couple of months ago by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the democratic socialist, to give $20 million to promote democracy in Venezuela, just goes to show the role of these reformist politicians as agents of the U.S. And it's also worth mentioning the, the, 
war drive against Venezuela um, also has the intention of rolling back the Cuban Revolution. So genuine socialists call for military defense of, the Venez of, of Venezuela against U.S. imperialism. That being said, support for Maduro and the PSUV is to build illusions among the Venezuelan working class. Maduro, as well as Chavez, well, I should say, Venezuela is a capital state. It defends private property, domestic firms, and conglomerates. And it's precisely because of that that the capitalists have been able to collude. The capitalists in Venezuela, the national capitalists, have been able to collude <coughs> with U.S. imperialism. And it's also worth mentioning, uh, back in 2008, yeah, the assassination of uh, national union of uh, leaders of the National Union of Workers after their op opposition to Chavez's attempts <coughs> to subjugate the workers' movement. So while we defend U.S. imperialism and we oppose, we, we call for the defeat of U.S. imperialism, there should be no illusions in the capitalist politician in Europe. Okay. Uh, let's do these one, two, I, I and, but let's get call, questions. I thought you had called on me first, and then you just... I, I, I called on you. her, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, can I, can I just say, I, I would hope the discussion would be about what we can do, yes. not generalities, not political like speeches, and on, on that order, to me, there's a couple of arenas that get ignored, and right now, the main one that gets people's attention is the electoral arena, and we should be bird-dogging <coughs> candidates for office who have not taken a position on the sanctions, for instance, Bernie Sanders. We should be bird-dogging uh, Elizabeth Warren. Where, wherever the opportunity is, we should intrude, because that's what it is. It's an intrusion, because the Democratic Party would rather not speak about war, peace, and militarism. So I, I hope that we can talk about specific suggestions. I have a few more to make. Okay. Uh, Thank you for your right. comment. We're going to do one, two, and then we'll get question, answers, and then we'll, we'll go more. On that note, um, uh, my name is Alice. I'm with the Revolutionary International Youth. I have, a, I have a few very quick comments in that vein. Jacob said pretty much everything else I was going to say about uh, the character of the Bolivarian government. But um, as a poet, you know, I, I really... Have, well, first, I'd like to begin by just saluting the embassy protectors. I think, you know, despite a tactical difference, I think that's, you know, a really heroic thing to do uh, against imperialist war. Um, but, uh, you know, we as revolutionary Marxists oppose the notion, we, you know, rather than building, you know, a movement for an abstract conception of peace or opposition to war, we're, we're fighting a movement that uh, engages in class war against imperialist war. We want to we have workers' action. Uh, to you know, defeat U.S. coup plots against, against Venezuela, to defend Cuba, to defend North Korea, China, Vietnam, Laos, and all the other deformed worker states in the, in the entirety of the uh, colonial and semi-colonial world uh, against U.S. Can imperialism. Can I ask, we ask that there not be big manifestos. You could put that out in your yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but, but a, concrete example, a concrete example I'd like to point to uh, was the 2008 uh, May <coughs> strike of the ILWU against the Iraq War, uh, which, you know, was which, which spurred a solidarity action by oil workers in Basra, Iraq. Okay, um, got anyway, One more, and then we're going to leave it there. Right. Um, I'm Jeff Mackler. I'm on the administrative committee of UNEC, and uh, we've organized many demonstrations in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I'm from. By the way, I'm running for president of the United States as a revolutionary socialist. 
And I don't think you're going to get very far pressuring any Democrat warmongering party to do that. <laughs> UNAC's central focus is out now. Hands off Venezuela. Solidarity with the Venezuelan people in opposition to U.S. intervention. Within that framework, everyone is welcome. But members and leaders and UNAC itself doesn't take a position on the internal issues confronting the Venezuelan people. That's for the Venezuelan people exercising their right to self-determination to decide. We just finished in the Bay Area organizing 400 people to defend Mumia Abu Jamal, and we raised $6,500 for Mumia's defense. Kevin and our friend from the Venezuelan UN mission, you come out to California, we'll organize a rip-roaring rally in solidarity with the Venezuelan people, in solidarity with the embassy defenders, and try to raise as much money as we can to continue your defense. I love San Francisco, by the way. Count us in. Thank you. They're on the plane already. Any of the panelists have anything to say on what, what has been said? Including our friend from the Venezuelan embassy, a Venezuelan consulate. Yes, Kevin. Well, first I want to thank Bauman and the other folks involved in this effort to defend the protectors. Uh, we really need the support. Uh, we can't do it ourselves. It's four of us against the U.S. government. And uh, that is a key area of organi organizing opportunity. So uh, doing things, I think we have a next court date, July 9th. There's going to be a long fight about a lot of different issues regarding discovery, you know, what was really going on at the embassy, what kind of agreement the U.S. government had with the mob outside. We're going to get all that out, and we're going to show this where it is. And to get a jury to say that the uh, takeover of the Venezuelan embassy by the U.S. coup is not good enough to convict us, to get an acquittal is a big statement internationally. And so I really appreciate the comments from the Venezuelan mission. Uh, some of the great, great moments in our experience was the support we got from Venezuela. Uh, the people of Venezuela really expressed incredible support. They held a Venezuela Solidarity Day for us. Uh, we got all sorts of messages of support from common people, movements, and from people in the government. It was fantastic. And really, when we were surrounded by a mob, you know, accusing us of being white folks, what are we doing in a Venezuelan embassy to get support from Venezuela was critical to our survival. As far as the election goes, it's an opportunity. Our job as a movement is bigger than the election, is to create national consensus that a coup in Venezuela is unacceptable. It's to create national consensus that U.S. imperialism is unacceptable. And that is our job in this 2020 election cycle. No specific candidate matters as much as what the movement does to make that the national consensus so nobody can run for office in support of this coup. If we can do that, it's a step toward the end of empire. Anybody else from the panel? So we can have difference with the Venezuelan revolution. Sure. We can say that it's non-revolution. We can say whatever you want to say about Venezuela and the Bolivarian revolution. But the reality is that Venezuela is confronting a serious situation with the United States. Already more than 4,000 people have died thanks to the sanctions of the United States. And because I have a political difference, I'm going to cross my hand and I'm going not to say anything and I'm going to denounce what's going on in Venezuela. United States is talking about a military intervention. And because I have a difference, a political difference, I'm going to cross my hands and I'm going not to say anything about it. So if I not say anything, and I'm not going to support, so I'm implicitly supporting a military intervention, a sanction that are killing a bunch of people in Venezuela and that are suffering 
right now. So I think that we have to take position, and we have to be clear. Are we going to be in, in the side of the people that are suffering or not? That's my comment. The real question for us is what we do faced with war, invasion, sanctions. I totally agree with William Kamakal here. We have to think what we're going to do and not with making academic critiques of how much Venezuela can do and can't do at this moment facing the sanctions, facing the fact that they have to import all their food from the U.S., that there's not much to nationalize. The, the greatest wealth in Venezuela was Citco based right here with 5,000 gas stations and five refineries and, and uh, pipelines and all of that. It's in the U.S. So there are big problems that Venezuela face, and for us it's a question of how to show solidarity, unity, resistance. Now, there's some actions coming up nationally. I really urge everyone here to think, can you do something in mid-July? There's already about 15 or more cities that say they're going to hold something. July 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Here in New York, we're going to do something on the 15th. It's a Monday at Harold Square. It's a great location. I'm going to call Margaret back there, too, who's really the staunchest. Uh, of the embassy protectors. But, but that's the kind of thing. We have to concretely think what we can do and what we can do in unity with each other if we're going to build a movement here and if we're going to be able to speak to the people of Venezuela. And I want to also thank, this isn't a lot, it's a little more than a couple hundred dollars, but uh, it's, it's a symbolic way also of resisting the sanctions and the same way with defending the embassy protectors. Some of this work is symbolic, and yet that symbolism says we refuse to go along for one minute. Yeah, so if you want to join an action that's happening in that period in the next several weeks, if you go to the UNAC website, unacpeace.org, you'll see actions. You'll also see a link where you can put your own action there. If your organization is not a member of UNAC, join it. If you're not on the sign-up list, uh, email list, join it. We have to figure out how to work together. And I just want you to remember a piece from recent history. We can go way back in history and talk about all sorts of things, but recent history. This movement in this country did not mobilize when this country overthrew the country of Libya, the government of Libya. This country, the peace movement, did not mobilize when we tried to destroy, but were beaten back to some extent, the country of Syria. Instead, there were some people said, well, we don't like this guy, we don't like that guy. That's exactly what the propaganda said. You just added your weight to the struggle, uh, to, to, to the side of imperialism by doing that. When our country is invading another country, is sanctioning another country, is killing people. Our elementary responsibility as human beings, I don't give a damn what tendency you're from, as human beings is to stand up on the streets, stand up at every damn election meeting that there is and say no, no to imperialism, U.S. hands off. 64 cents out of every discretionary tax dollar goes to the war. You can't do anything else. Get out there and fight it. And if you can't do that, then talk somewhere else.
Margaret. Uh, Margaret Flowers, I'm the other co-director of Popular. <laughs> yeah. Pharmaceuticals, just for a second. Thank you. Oh, the question about the pharmaceuticals. Yeah, we were down when we were in, in uh, Venezuela. We met with a, actually, he was a former <coughs> minister um, who now is in charge of procurement. And Venezuela used to have the highest per capita amount of pharmaceuticals of the Latin American countries, but because of the economic measures, uh, either businesses have pulled out or their own manufacturers. Manufacturers have not been able to manufacture pharmaceuticals. They can't get the precursors to make them. So they have an 84% deficit, and that's why they've turned to Russia and China to help provide them monthly now with, with medications and medical supplies, you know, surgical supplies and things like that, right? So um, they're, they're trying to do that, and, I, and actually shortly after we got back, uh, I know Maduro visited a factory that they were trying to reopen just to make more farms. So they're doing what they can, but without... I mean, it's not just the, the, the direct sanctions on them, but when they reach out to another country to try to get uh, supplies or things like that, the U.S. calls those countries and tells them, if you deal with Venezuela, we're sanctioning you. I mean, it's just this is like over-the-top illegal that's going on, and it's having a really a terrible human cost out there. Uh, so my name is Tomas. I'm, I'm not a member of any organization. I just want to say that one of the best things we can do just day to day is the propaganda of Venezuela is this idea that Maduro is a terrible dictator and you know he deserves no humanity. However, USA right now is supporting Bolsonaro, who has said right. all homosexuals, all blacks, all natives, and basically 60% of the people of Brazil should be exterminated. They are supporting Macri, who is the worst thing that has ever happened in Argentina. And they are actually supporting Saudi Arabia, who basically treats their own country. Mecca City is the biggest threat to the planet. 
and somehow these people decide to flounder all their money all over the place. We should not let them have this conversation. They should not have control of the conversation saying mm -hmm. that they, we are doing this for humanitarian reasons, where we are supporting probably the worst people on earth. Right. Uh, right now, and also the way we are treating our people, like Flint, Michigan, the, the next example, just that, not let them convince you that somehow USA has best interests at heart when we are treating, basically, for the rest of the history of the United States of America, black people, like the worst. So, just a reminder, don't let them convince you otherwise. <laughs> Okay. I, I am from Ecuador, and I just want to, you know, make this point that, you know, Venezuela has been allied for the rest of Latin American countries, like just the example of Simon Bolivar was the liberator of Ecuador, and also when Hugo Chavez was alive, we had a conflict with Colombia, and Venezuela was the only country who was supporting Ecuador in that conflict against uh, Colombia. And then, then later on, Nicolas Maduro, when we had a massive earthquake in, in my country, two, we call it provinces, which here would be the equivalent of states, were destroyed by this earthquake. And Nicolas Maduro was the first one sending help to, to my country. And even here in the United States, you know, CIDBO was providing five different states because uh, uh, oil, uh, it was not free, but it was providing oil at cost. The only country uh, giving the help to the United States was Venezuela. That's right. So we should never forgive, I mean, people up here are saying that it's not uh, a socialist country. It actually, it's not a socialist government, but it is committed to actually help people despite being a capitalist country. That's what we, we have to keep in mind. Um, once again, thank you, Venezuela, me being from Ecuador. Right now, U.S. imperialism is like the main enemy in the world. That's right. They want to control Africa. They have the Monroe Doctrine that was all Latin America, Asia. And this oppression, national oppression for imperialism, is causing national movements for liberation, for sovereignty. And for us to take a position against those national liberation struggles today, in the name of some fictitious Socialism, without taking into consideration the concrete conditions that exist, is reactionary. Wow. Okay, you're going to end up helping the bourgeoisie in the United States with those positions, not the national liberation in the world. Thank you. Um, go on there. So um, I just want to uh, suggest something that all of you can do. I should also tell you I wear a couple different hats other than just working with coat paint. Um, I'm the founder of the Intrepid News Fund that Kevin went with us to, uh, and Roger too, uh, with us to Venezuela in May for the elections last year. And also, I'm the um, coordinator for the campaign to end U.S. and Canada sanctions against Venezuela. And one of uh, the projects that we supported through help with the National Lawyers Guild, um, Susan Scott specifically, and members of Task Force on the America in Marin County, which was um, having a group of people draft a resolution with the city of Berkeley for no U.S. intervention and to lift the sanctions. And so that's just something that some of you might want to consider doing in your local communities and municipalities is a, is a local resolution to start building from the grassroots. 
and the local communities. And we do have an example of that resolution at um, on our website, which is at afgj.org. Okay, what is the website? afgj.org is where our anti-sanctions AF Alliance for Global Justice. Okay, thank you. <coughs> yes. Yeah, there's a saying that he who digs a road, he makes a revolution halfway, becomes his own grave digger. Mm -hmm. As comrades here have said, the Bolivarian revolution has badly stalled. Uh, uh, Chavez ultimately did not fully break the capital. He helped a lot of people in Venezuela, of course. But he was ultimately did not break the capital. Uh, he wanted independent capitalist development beyond the, the, the U.S.-oriented copper or oil oligarchy. And the result of that, the uh, Bolivarian Revolution declined rapidly. It's, it's, it's on life support now in Maduro. And this leaves a hole wide open for imperialism to come right in. So I think in politics, like everything else, the best defense, best defense is a good offense. And there's the... Uh, Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution, you have to uh, working class action from below or you get pushed back. Okay, um, let's see if we have any responses here from people. Bauman? Well, um, I'm, it's unfortunate that this discussion keeps coming back. But one thing I would like to say, that there's two major flaws with your arguments. One is that there's nothing, no phase between capitalism and socialism as if you can jump to it. And anybody who wants to move has to declare socialism immediately. Otherwise, it doesn't work, right? People are dealing with concrete conditions and they have to deal with it in a practical, possible way. That's one. Secondly, I, I just, since you are talking about revolution, revolution, I consider myself a Leninist. And one thing he said that was quite absolutely right. He said if you go too far to the left, you end up on the right side. And I think that's really Okay. So, um, she has a yeah. from first of all, as our first obligation as anti-war activists is to stop U.S. imperialism. Um, we can have all sorts of academic discussions at all different forms, but let's understand that. We have a, a response from our, our comrade from Venezuela. Uh, only uh, a very quickly comment, comment on regard the, uh, the socialism and the political model in Venezuela. The path to, or the road to socialism is not a flat road or a fast track road. It's a road uh, with a lot of obstacles. From the beginning of the Bolivarian revolutions, um, the manifestations of our government to move on in that direction has been very clear. In, in this political struggle has begun for the, from the same day that the government ma has manifest, expressed that, that will. Our constitution, the, the Bolivarian Re Republic, of, <laughs> our constitution in the Bolivarian uh, process is a new one that has um, it has proposed, has very concrete proposals on this way. Then we, ha we have tried to promote the constitutional reform that will, will be the first uh, socialist constitution, but it's not easy to make a revolution by democratic ways, you know? There is a constant fight. We think that that is the key. That is the real key to, to, to 
promote a socialist revolution through democratic ways in the context of the globalization, in the con con context of the four-generation warfare, where you, you must fight against the biggest corporation of communication and the biggest capital powers foreign. So it, we had tried to move on fast, and we, the, we had time to do so, but we have all the power of the empire against us to uh, throw back all the uh, all the win all the things that I get only 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 this idea I would like to to Great. explain. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I mean, I think it's more important to call this the Bolivarian process, not a Bolivarian revolution, because it is a process. And I, as much as I'd like, I, we were in, when we were in Venezuela, we met with the Communist Party as well, and they had similar criticisms uh, about Venezuela being a capitalist country, and it's really a failure of capitalism. Uh, not a failure of socialism, especially when the capitalism added the problems in Venezuela, you add U.S. capitalism uh, adding its pressure on Venezuela. So it's a very complicated situation, and I think the pressure for moving toward socialism more quickly is a good pressure. I'm glad people are pushing that, uh, and I'm sure there's mixed feelings in the government about that as well. Uh, and so this is how nations change. Uh, and I don't know how, I can't, you know, you, you were claiming that, you know, the, the destruction of Venezuela on life support, that's a destruction for two big reasons. One, Venezuela for more than 100 years has been dominated by oil. Uh, and oil currency is their foreign exchange, basically. 90% of the foreign money comes from oil. When oil prices drop one, from 150 to 50 a barrel, that was a major destruction for Venezuela's economy. And that was an intentional act. More will come out about that in the future, that that was an intentional tactic by the United States with Saudi Arabia to make that price drop because they want to go after Venezuela, Iran, Russia, a number of countries who are challenging the United States. So that was one thing. The second thing was the sanctions, which started under Bush, actually, small sanctions, escalated under Obama and escalated under Trump. And the combination of those sanctions and the drop in oil prices, that's what's on life support. Uh, it's not the failure of them not moving in capitalism. It's not the failure of socialism. It's the reality of all these various factors. Uh, and I don't know how a, a government uh, can manage an economy when it's under attack by all of Western uh, developed countries, by Western banking, uh, by massive economic sanctions. Anyone who deals with them gets sanctioned. I mean, it's just constant. How will you manage an economy and a government when you're under that kind of attack? It's very difficult. And while we oppose U.S. imperialism, we also impose people in the United States telling Venezuela, you're not socialist enough. Right. Uh, we don't tell them that. That's not our job. Our job is to defend U.S. imperialism. Our job is to fight what our government is doing. Our, our job is to say no to our government's empire and end U.S. empire in the quickest and most responsible way possible, which I hope will be within the next decade, I think can be within the next decade, and this fight in Venezuela and this embassy protection collective will go down in history as one of the factors that ended U.S. empire. If we build on it, if we organize around it, if we mobilize around it, we can end U.S. empire in the best way for the people of the United States and the people of the world. That's our job. Okay. We're at the end of the period. Um, William, did you have a last comment? Yeah, very quickly. Very quickly, I just want to mention, um, uh, first of all, to um, completely agree with Keith because um, Kevin, because um, 
There are so much criticism from the grassroots movement to the government. It's no, it's something that is reality. It's something that is there. But that doesn't mean that they don't support the government. Right. So, you, and that's something that happened here for the right wing because they can see the contradictions. But people on the ground, they don't have that contradiction. They know that they have to support the government. And that's what the Communist Party told us. Yeah. And, and because exactly. I said so, that so. the movement has to come together for the defense of the people that were in so, the embassy, we as a movement have to come together for defense so, of and, Venezuela and, and, when and it see, is under and for attack. For the first time that in the history of Venezuela, seeing the revolution came, or the process, but it was, and, and that's true. People call more the process. Right. The process. The Venezuelan process. So since the, Venez- since, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution came, so, uh, for the first time, we are talking in Venezuela about eco-socialism. There is already several uh, law that has been passed by the um, President Maduro but to promote so, uh, eco-socialism in Venezuela. There is also an eco-socialism minister. So, I don't know how many, you know, government have an eco-socialism minister. So, so, <laughs> so we have also... Uh, the, 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 project, the project is to move from the oil industry to create a sustainable society. That is there. But everything is on paper. But the problem is when you are moving to that, through that process, you, need, you, you, you are confronting all those problems with the empire. One of the, you mentioned something that a lot of people don't know. The law, the sea law that the government passed just few years ago, like five years ago, it's a sea law to prohibit Monsanto, to prohibit uh, 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 all this buyer, all this, co- this big corporation, to, to, use, to, the, to prohibit to the state to use all those uh, uh, portion, that, all that garbage that they sell for the agriculture. So the, and that law is promoting the local agriculture. That law is promoting the... Uh, the ecological agriculture, and, they, uh, and that's the direction that the government wants. If you law, if, in, and what the right wing wants to do? They want to eliminate the law. Of course. They want to get power and immediately eliminate the sea law. That is one of the most progressive agricultural law in the entire continent. So, and we need to, everything is a step by step. You don't do something one day after another one. So, just let me end with Tomorrow at 10 o'clock, UNAC is going to have another panel on Ukraine. Some of us just came back from Ukraine, and it's a very interesting situation there because they did do a U.S.-sponsored coup in 2014, and we watched fascists wearing swastikas marching through the streets with torchlights. That's the direction if we cannot defeat U.S. imperialism everywhere in the world. So let's go out and do it. Thank you.